you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 55 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. Myself, Mark Tottenham Barrister and editor of Decisis Law Reports. Mark, good to see you as always. And last week, you will recall, we had a fascinating discussion, a really fascinating discussion, which I wasn't part of, but I really enjoyed listening back to. And that was the realities of being a devil in our wonderful profession. And as people know, being a devil is how you start out as a barrister. Colleagues Sarah Reid and Aaron Grealish came in to talk to us and it was really, really good. Yeah, yeah, and it shows how you don't notice when you're part of the profession how it's sort of changing incrementally. But, you know, devils are working in a completely different way now than they did in the those few short years since yourself and myself started out. And there's nothing like a few tips. I mean, in the good old days, you really kind of belted away, didn't you? And sort of, you know, tried to make your own way. But like a little bit of of, of information like this and this book, which is really, really valuable and really good, is a great help. So we recommend that hugely. And that was a cracker of an interview. People should listen back to it. Okay, well, moving from the barrister's profession to our sister profession, the solicitors. Today in studio, we're going to be joined by the, I was going to say the new Director General of the Law Society, Mark Garrett. He's actually been there almost two years. He just feels like a more recent appointment. Mm. Uh, And we're really looking forward to to talking to Mark. Uh, And obviously, there's a lot of issues currently facing the solicitor's profession. Mark, there are a few pressing issues, you believe? Definitely, yeah. Certainly, um, the, the, the small high street firms are feeling the pinch. There's um, a touch of the David and Goliath at the moment, yeah, isn't there? Yeah, you know, the yeah, kind of small yeah. firm versus the kind of the huge firms. Yeah. I mean, you mm. pick, you, you, you switch on LinkedIn and you see all these firms that are recruiting all the time. And apparently, there's ne'er a trainee down the west and the west of the Shannon. Mm. It's, it's rare to find a trainee solicitor these and, days. And it's hard even, to believe. Even, you know, the smaller uh, sort of Dublin firms who, who deal with private clients, it's, it's just, it, you know, the, the money is in the big commercial firms. Yeah, moment. and your standard solicitor's firm, so important, folks. It is mm. so important. So anyway, we're going to talk to Mark about that and what they're doing within the Law Society to sort of assist those firms and to manage the profession generally. Really looking forward to that. But before we get to those, we've got our three cases from Decisis Mark, which you have chosen. In the first case this week, a local authority had issued a vesting order. You're going to have to explain that one, Mark. Under the dereliction sites legislation, the owner of the property sought to challenge it by way of judicial review. However, he had been declared bankrupt and the court had to decide whether he had standing to challenge that order. And this is the case of Tobin versus Limerick City. And it's a high court decision of Mr. Justice Simons. Yeah. So the derelict sites legislation makes provision particularly for in urban areas where buildings are falling derelict and the local authorities feel that it's sort of re- reducing the impression of the area, the, the standard of the area. And so they're allowed to effectively put the owner on notice and say, if you don't fix this up, we can issue a derelict sites order and the property will then vest in the local authority and the, the local authority can either do it up or sell it. But So vesting simply means moving it into the ownership of the local authority. In this particular case, the person who was the at least the nominal owner um, had been declared bankrupt. And of course, the effect of bankruptcy is that you no longer own your property. It all gets vested in the official assignee in bankruptcy. And so 
when he sought to challenge the vesting order, the, the local authority said, well, you don't have the standing to bring this application. It can only be brought by the official assignee in bankruptcy. And the court agreed with that submission. They said that if the person who had owned the property wanted to challenge the order, he needed to basically make the submission to the official assignee in, in, in bankruptcy. Okay, very good. Really well explained there. Okay, let's move to our second case. And this is a derogation license which had been granted in relation to a development concerning bats. Oh, wow. Judicial review had already been refused concerning the substantive development, but the applicants sought to challenge the derogation license separately. You're going to have to tell us about what issues arose here. I remember many, many moons ago we had uh, Fred Logan here, who's mm. a well-known solicitor in this area of law, and he talked about bats being, you know, yeah. very prevalent amongst uh, planning yeah. decisions and judicial reviews and, you know, yes. the, the so, habits and the mating habits and the flying habits and the whatever habits they have of yeah, bats. Well, the, so the, tell us more. The, the habitats directive and the, the, the various wildlife directives come into play here. And what happens here is that the planning permission had been given for a particular development. And then as part of that, if it affects certain habitats, you get what they call a derogation license, which as, as far as I can understand means that you're entitled to interfere with the habitat of a particular species. And this one concerned bat roosts, foraging and commuting. The issue was that they sought to challenge the in the same proceedings both the the planning permission and the derogation license. And the court refused judicial review of the planning permission. But then they said, yeah, but you have to treat the derogation license separately because it is decided separately. And the point was that not only is it decided separately, but because it doesn't come under the planning and development legislation, different time limits apply. So it's not subject to the narrow planning time limits. It's subject to the general three-month time limit. Mark, um, I can't believe this. You can talk about bats and here you go again talking about time, time limits. limits. Time limits. But when it comes to judicial review, time <laughs> limits are all important, I'm afraid. Um, so, And I should say that that's the case of O'Donnell versus on board Planola and who else but Mr. Justice Richard Humphreys gave that decision. Okay? Well, I should just say that this is one where basically he was looking for further submissions and it's a matter that may be referred to the Court of Justice for the European Union. Okay, very good. And thank you for that clarification. Okay, finally, we have an airline employee who claimed to have been injured during a hard landing. She sought discovery of the cockpit voice recordings and claimed that she was entitled to them. So this is the case of Pertle versus Aer Lingus Limited and it was a decision of Mr Justice Simons. Yeah, so as we all know, there is a recording that happens in, all, in cockpits and when there has been a serious crash, then they get listened to to find out what gave rise to the crash. But in this case, the airline employee claimed that the airplane had come down in such a way that she got injured. And she said, well, we know that they record the cockpit, we, the, you know, the conversation of the pilot. I, I should be entitled to this because it may affect my case. The defence to that application... Please don't tell me she was out of time. It, but you'll be glad to know this has nothing to do with time limits. <laughs> the the, the, the defence... But effectively was that, that that these recordings should only be released in very in certain very specific circumstances and that if you generally allowed them to be released they might have a chilling effect on the kind of conversations that pilots had with each other so that you know pilots shouldn't be sort of feel oh well every time I'm flying a plane I need to be careful of what I say and so if an ordinary personal injuries issue case arises you shouldn't just hand over the the copy voice recording, and I think I'm right in saying that 
she was allowed sort of a few seconds before and answer after the landing, but that was it. But yes, what it, what what yeah, the so judge said was pilots might be more circumspect in their communications, and in the case of private aircraft in particular, pilots might choose not to install or operate voice recording equipment. Okay, so, interesting mm. decision. I mean, yeah. I can see I can see the reasoning of the judge in relation mm. to that. But on the other hand, I mean, it's not privileged conversation or it's not a privileged statement, etc. Well, it, is, it effectively is privileged, I suppose, from the, is from it, the way is he's that, treating it. So that's the judge has found that, has yeah. he? Yeah. Okay, wow, that's interesting. Well, we know the kind of, I suppose, the, the pilot, like the captain of a ship is basically in charge, isn't that it? Mm. I mean, you know, the captain of a ship can get you, can marry you and do all these sort of things. I don't that know they're allowed pilots are allowed <laughs> When the plane is up in the middle of the sky. I don't know. Okay, really well explained, Mark. And uh, we're back shortly with the Director General of the Law Society, Mark Garrett. Silence in the Fifth Court. Well, it is my great pleasure to welcome to the show the Director General of the Law Society, Mark Garrett. Mark, you're very welcome to the Fifth Court. Thanks very much. I'm we've delighted been, to be here. We've been chasing you for a little while. You're now almost two years in the role? It'll be two years in January. Indeed. Okay, and you're well settled. Okay, well, we're going to talk about the realities of running the solicitor's body later in this interview. But first, I want to go right back to the start. Mark, you have an incredible backstory, which I know a little bit about. But first, you're a County Mayo man, isn't that it? Absolutely, from Balna, County Mayo on the, on the Moy. Uh, great to see uh, Joe Biden there uh, yes. earlier, in the, earlier in the year and was back for the event as well. The town never looked better. Okay, I actually was there myself that night. It was, it was, it was a very special evening. Now, I met you for the first time. We have a mutual pal and we were at a wedding in County Cork many moons ago. And at the time you were working in PR, I think, and you were working for the late, great Bill O'Hurley. Indeed, a very proud Cork man indeed. Um, absolutely, yeah. No, look, it was my first job out of college, working working with Bill. Learned a lot from him. In fairness, it was an academy for an awful lot of people uh, I've met in my career over the years who were through Bill's hands over the years. I really enjoyed working with Bill. The personality you saw on television or radio is exactly what you worked with as well. A fantastic guy, really learned an awful lot from him. And lots of people who... Uh, I worked with there, including Bride Rosney, unfortunately, who uh, so died recently. Away recently yeah, yeah, and was advisor to Mary Robinson, of yeah, course. And you lots, know. lots of other great colleagues who I met there and still very friendly with as well. So I really enjoyed that and time. And what was it about Bill? He was a very special person, wasn't he? Well, there was something about him is that the sense of never mind the enthusiasm he had for whatever he got involved in. That he wore his cork pride on Back his Louis. sleeve. Wasn't that Absolutely. Back I won't even try and do the details there. But yeah, I, mean, yeah. I mean, even to a point where he always drove a cork registered car and made sure no matter when he got a new car it had a cork reg on it so he wore it on his sleeve there's no doubt about it Okay and from there you went on and worked in was it from there you went in I think there's I suppose Bill O'Hurley he was associated with Fine Gael. I think there's no great mystery about that and One of I the think national it's, handlers from yes, the 1980s. Yes, national handlers indeed, yeah. with Gareth Fitzgerald, wasn't yeah, he? He was very exactly, close with, yeah. with Gareth Fitzgerald. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, there's no mystery that you had an association with the Labour Party once oh, yeah. upon a time. And was it from there that you went into working with Eamon Gilmore or was there a few steps in between? There was certainly a few steps in between, all right. Yeah, no, I, I worked at Bill for a number of years, but then, I mean, I went on and did a, had quite a bit of time working in the public sector in Ireland here, uh, both for the Digital Hub uh, agency to look in developed in the Liberties area of Dublin, fantastic part of Dublin, looking to build that into a digital, I suppose, enterprise zone for the city and for the country. Um, and then I also worked in the Competition Authority for a number of years as well. So very much my public sector stint before actually myself and my wife moved to New York uh, from that. Okay, and it course, was when yeah, I was yeah. when I was in New York, I was working with McKinsey for a number of years there. And it, well, while I was there and we were contemplating our future, just applied for our green cards 
I got a call from Eamon Gilmore asking me would I do a, uh, a job for him, come back and be his chief of staff uh, after he'd been elected leader of the Labour Party in okay. uh, 2000, end of 2007. Now, we are going to talk about the Law Society, but I can't let this one go. So mm. 2011, obviously mm. huge general election, country in economic crisis at the time. Troika had landed in town prior to that, yeah. etc. And you came in as chief advisor to the, the Taunashta Eamon Gilmore, was that your role? Yep, that's right. And my job was to over, oversee his, the Thonish's office and the, and the running of the Labour part of that government in collaboration with the you know, chief of staff or the Taoiseach. So the chief of staff of the Taoiseach and the Thonish would meet on a probably bi-weekly basis just to look at what the legislative agenda was, what are the, the practical workings of government, what was happening in terms of uh, legislative votes and, and all of that. So, yeah. Okay. Well, I don't think you're bound by cabinet confidentiality. So, you're not sure you're not? Uh, no, well, you'd have to be in <laughs> so the cabinet. I was never, I never, us all the inside story. Is never a member of cabinet. So, no, no, I'm not. I'm certainly not. But I certainly am subject to the uh, secrets act. I'd say, it was, I'd say it was a very pressurised role, but I'd say it was a fascinating role. Well, look, uh, look I'm absolutely, it was a, a privilege to do a role like that, especially at a time when the country was going through such trauma and I think nobody gets into politics, no one gets into government to be in times like that. But I think, you know, I worked with an amazing group of politicians, certainly, but also public servants at a time when Ireland was going through, you might call it multiple crises. Um, I mean, we certainly know about the, the collapse in the banking system. We know in terms of public finances, it also collapsed. The housing market, it collapsed. The economy, it collapsed. You think about all these things all happening at the same time where ultimately there was nobody to lend money to the Irish economy in a way that I must admit I've been uh, looking on jealously, I suppose, uh, to a certain extent, uh, with recent uh, budgetary processes that government have been able to go through in the last couple of years. And it's fantastic yeah. to see. I mean, the Labour Party have got a lot of kicking for their role in that government. Do you think that's unfair? Look, I have a lot of pride in what we achieved during that time. You think about the 2011-2016 government, we can go through an awful lot of detail in it if we want to. But I think um, yeah, I certainly have a lot of pride in it. There's no doubt there were political and uh, electoral consequences to that. Um, and I think the Labour Party suffered probably more than its fair share in regard to that. And I think there's a real opportunity, I think, in every time you're in government to shape the agenda. And that's certainly what the Labour Party has always done. Mm. Um, so I think very proud of that time doesn't mean we didn't make mistakes and we could have, you know, and should have maybe done different things or, you know, people will point out where we were flawed in our methodology or our decision making. And, you know, we're human uh, as every other organisation is. Or, um, but absolutely, when you look back in terms of where the country was at the end of that government. You also, people kind of forget in many ways, restoring minimum wages, going back to a point where that was a period of government where more classrooms were built in that period of government than at any other time in our history. And you think about the, you know, in terms of what did we prioritise in terms of that? Uh, and the level libraries. Of social, and libraries too, um, in terms of, I mean, you know, school, school book rentals and various other aspects of that. Mm. Think about the social change that came in, legislation for the X case uh, for the first time, which had been talked about for a long time, but actually achieved under that government. You look at the issues around um, the two referenda that quickly followed in terms of marriage equality and again, in terms of uh, repeal the eighth. You know, huge amount of change, huge amount of economic Stability restored, a lot of renegotiation with the Troika. There were certainly programmes and imposed, I suppose, and uh, put on, but a huge amount of negotiations. People forget a little bit now, and that's understandable. We've moved on a long time since then. Um, but likes of the promise you note. Remember when we knew mm. all the details sure. of what these were? And I think there's a huge amount... Uh, it's yet to be written and reflected sure. yeah, upon no, about that time. Fascinating, Mark. Absolutely. And I mean, you had a couple of jobs in between. You worked with Glambia, I know, for a while. Indeed, indeed. In the, in the PR game again and head of communications. And then you were with Tenio, famous company indeed. as well. Indeed. And then 
And then, Mm -hmm. did you put in your application to become Director General of the Law Society or did somebody tap you on the shoulder or how did that happen? A new new change of direction. I certainly got a call and asked would I be interested. And I suppose, look, I mean, the big theme, I suppose, of all of my career has been around public policy, shaping policy, being involved at a governmental level in the public sector and in the private sector. So the theme all the way through, I think there's a real opportunity in the Law Society, as I saw it, in terms of knowing that the central role law plays in Irish society in shaping how we live every facet of our lives. And I think there's a real opportunity, and I saw it as such, to to help shape and lead that, and very interested in doing so. And you're taking over after Ken Murphy's 20, 25 years? I think Ken or? was Ken was in the role for 26 years, 26 but then years. he was he was actually, I took over from Mary Kane, who right, actually yeah, did yeah. the role for a year, first woman right. to be Director General okay. of the Law Society and okay. fellow Uh, Mayo person who did the role for most of uh, 2021. Right, okay. But in terms of the sort of the long-term strategy, I mean, are you looking now at uh, at strategies kind of 20 years in advance or uh, what kind of time frame are you looking at? Well, I think we've learned, if we've learned anything Mm. over the last Mm. number of years, Mm. uh, looking ahead for 20 years and trying Mm. to predict what's going to happen is a fool's game. Uh, My crystal ball, and I've yet to meet anyone whose crystal Mm. ball uh, Mm. can work like that. But we certainly are looking at as every organisation does look at a a five-year strategy. In fact, the current strategy runs out at the end of 2023. So it's timely. We've spent most of this year looking at what our strategy will be for the next five and trying to plan ahead as best possibly can. And this is strategy for the whole legal solicitor's profession or the strategy for the law society as a a kind of regulatory... Yeah, well, it's basically what role will the law society have in shaping the legal system in Ireland, but and then helping the solicitor's profession itself thrive over the next five years, looking at the challenges, looking at the opportunities. And, uh, you know, there's there's lots out there. There's no doubt that it's a profession that is growing, huge demand yeah. for the services, okay, and Mark, lots to talk about in that can, area. Can we look at the numbers? Let's start at the yeah. beginning, basically. Okay. So so how many solicitors do you represent? What's what's the, the figures? Yeah, there are 12,000, just under 12,000 practising solicitors in Ireland at the moment. And I suppose to give a bit of context to that, this is the, in 2023, we're commemorating the centenary of the first women to become solicitors back in 1923, uh, following a change in the law, which uh, obviously excluded them back from uh, from a lot of professions in advance of that. There were a thousand solicitors in Ireland at that point. It took 75 years for that to grow to four and a half thousand. So 25 years ago, we had four and a half thousand and today we have 12,000. So exponential growth, really significant, probably a historical number of trainees coming through the system as well and huge demand for services in all aspects, very much reflecting, um, I think, the growth in the Irish economy, the sophistication of the Irish society and economy all the time. So there's there's lots of change there and okay. lots of growth. So Mark, you're, you're describing a mushroom cloud there, basically. You know, I mean, suddenly in the last, as you say, in the last, what is it, 10 years, 20, 20 years, this massive growth, doubling, mm. trebling almost, of solicitors. Why? What's what's going on? What's happening? Well, I think, it's, I mean, it's quite clear that it reflects, um, first of all, it's more a mosaic, I would suggest, is the image I would portray. Is it's becoming a very diversified profession. We no longer have that standard model of large firm in urban areas, small generalist firm in, in areas outside the main cities. It's very much a huge growth in in-house counsel. 25% of the sister's profession is now in-house, growing to 30% as we see it. Again, a growing demand for legal advice, regulation in all areas. There's no issue at this moment in time that government isn't expected to solve and solve overnight. That usually means additional legislation, additional regulation, enforcement of and advice and, and, and legal services needed. We also saw huge 
economic growth, investment in Ireland over the last 25 years from through foreign direct investment. We have huge multinational companies here now working, operating and in need of services, whether they be accountancy service, whether they be catering services, whether they be legal services. They're, they're expanding at a rate and so are the professions as allied with them. And, and the legal is, and, is no different from and that. And outside the 75%, presumably we now have a reasonably large number that are international firms that have set up shop in Ireland <laughs> A reasonably large number who are large commercial Dublin firms, effectively. Yeah. Obviously, there are large commercial firms outside Dublin, but predominantly yeah. here. And then what proportion are still kind of high street kind of, um, you, you know, family firms? Or, yeah. you know? Well, it's basically, you look at it, it is, it's not quite as blocked out as that in terms mm-hmm. of in, into individual blocks, because you now have small individual firms specializing in key areas, intellectual mm-hmm. property, data, mm-hmm. you know, employment law and so on. Mm-hmm. So they, um, and then you have the, what you're talking about is the traditional model yeah. of approximately, you know, one or a small number of solicitors in family run firms, mm-hmm. community based, offering community based services. Yeah. And that's about a third of the professionals. It's still so, as, as much as Yeah, those. absolutely. Okay. Um, but you're talking about, you know, that mosaic now extends mm-hmm. into international firms that have moved into Ireland, Irish firms that now are selling their international services abroad. We're in an international market. So there's no doubt that the solicitor's profession is thriving in many ways. But it's not thriving for everyone and it's not thriving everywhere. And that's well, clearly the view. Yeah, I mean, this is something that's come up on the show before. That yeah. the, the real challenge is, as far as I can see, for the the high street firms that the, I mean, it's certainly been said and I think, I think it's it's correct that trainees going into the big commercial firms are now paid something like 50,000 a year and your high street firm in Dublin or elsewhere simply can't afford that kind of money for a trainee if they're doing conveyancing, um, wills, family law, district court representation, that kind of, you know, the, the, the sort of thing that people generally have to go to a solicitor for. Is that something that the Law Society can assist with? Well, I think there's no doubt that they, I mean, we've, you know, when you want to find out what's going on mm. in the legal profession or in any other mm. areas, was big believer in asking people what the issues yeah. are. And that's one of the things we've done as part of the background for our strategy is we had mm. a very extensive uh, survey of solicitors around the country. And there's no doubt, again, what came up through that, and we were very lucky to get over 2,260 of our solicitor members responded to that, which is a, mm. a huge uh, response. And there's no doubt that that is one of the areas, but it's not the only area. There's challenges mm. in other areas, but let's delve into this one for the moment. There's no doubt that this is an issue that's been there for some time, but it's not unique to Ireland. Mm. And it's not unique to the legal profession either. We see this with GPs in the in yeah, yeah. So, so recent reports from that that research mark yeah, tell well, us it shows the similar issues with other professionals you think okay. veterinary surgeons and others that they're what they're under pressure is the costs the burden of regulation there's no doubt there as well that what they're seeing is the talent you know as you say getting getting people to join mm. the firm getting people to buy the firm out to succession planning all of these issues mm. talking to colleagues in other jurisdictions in northern ireland in scotland and england and wales and those law societies exactly the same issues yeah. And this is something right across the board that the profession is struggling with. And I think there's lots of good ideas. We have a number of programs in place right now. We do practice support grants in areas where um, there hasn't been a trainee for some time, where we can financially support a firm to take on a trainee. We have access programs for trainees where we where they are challenged financially. For any reason, they can uh, go through our courses and there's quite a, quite a bit of effort done on that every single year. But I think we have to be, it was a real societal challenge here. Last year, we had 11 counties in Ireland which had either only one or no trainee. My home county of Mayo, one trainee last year. That has increased to 13 counties this year. We have 92% of our trainees 
are from every county in Ireland, but they are working within Dublin-based firms. So that's 92% of the current intake of trainees. But we're realistically talking about a situation where, going back to my question about the long term, Mm. in 20 years' time, it might be difficult to find somebody to do your conveyance, to draft your will, to represent you in in the local court, yeah. as it may be to to find a GP. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah. it, it, think it's a problem with the professions. We're absolutely high. Yeah, we're absolutely mm. agree with that. Mm. Uh, that. The idea that we're now seeing is what we're calling legal de- potential for the growth of legal deserts, areas yeah. where you will not be able to access legal services in your local community. Mm-hmm. And we think that's a real challenge. And I think we want to make sure we, we're not trying to solve that on our own because that's not possible. This is a societal issue. Yeah. This is one where, you know, access to justice, access to that legal support in usually in tough circumstances or where people are vulnerable is one where that has to be provided at a societal level. And we have to, I think, join forces with the likes of other professionals, such mm-hmm. as the doctors, such as the vets, such as the pharmacists and others, because those are services that need to be provided if we want to have a thriving rural Ireland. And it's really important. But Mark, when you say societal, I mean, I, they're shocking figures. I can't get over mm. those. I mean, it sounds like, you know, sort of priestly vocations or something. You know, I mean, it's it's kind of one trainee in the whole of Mayo, a big yeah. county like Mayo, mm-hmm. all the firms in all the towns and villages in, in Mayo, and only one trainee. I mean, that's absolutely shocking. Yeah. I mean, you say it's societal, but... You know, societal is kind of, in one way, that's some. That, does that sound a bit like kicking it to touch from from the law society's point of view? Because, I mean, you actively have to get involved and try and change that. Well, I think we have to get active and are actively involved. And there's a number of programs already in place and more coming down the lines. We've, we've evolved new programs, a hybrid program for trainees, whereby you don't have to be on block release in Dublin to become a trainee. You can do that while keeping on your working and caring responsibilities in other parts of the country. And we're noticing the demographic change in that course is substantially different from the traditional courses. But we're also challenging, public sector is one that I have conversations with on a regular basis who say they can't afford to hire a solicitor based on public sector rates. And one of the challenges I would say is it's time to grow some of that talent as well. Last year of almost 500 trainees, two of them came from the public sector and huge demand, growing demand in the public sector for legal advice and so for they need to provide advice. apprenticeships is that what exactly. you're saying yes but there's, okay. a, but there's a real opportunity there that if you're just in and grow talent and bring that along and bring people at different career stages through the process we're exploring areas of other areas of where using the new apprenticeship model using various other aspects of legal education but we think that there's also an opportunity for others to look at this and i think in-house council and the public sector needs to look at these areas and grow opportunities for people because there's no shortage of demand for for trainees, there's no shortage of demand for solicitors, there's no shortage of demand for legal services. And that's a good thing in a healthy economy and a healthy society and a healthy legal system. Um, and those are the positives. Um, the challenge is making sure we have the opportunities because the survey also shows that we're losing talent within the profession. I mean, we the Los Angeles Day is a very significant report just uh, about two years ago, which showed that about bullying, harassment and sexual harassment at very significant levels within the profession. Now, I don't think the legal profession is any different or massively different from any other walk of life. I think, at the very least, the Law Society predating me was brave enough to look at that, publish a detailed report and look at actions of which we're we're going through. But there's no doubt that we are losing people from the profession and because of the demands that are placed on them, the type of atmosphere that they have or environment L- they have to work in. Losing them to, to other areas of work. They're just leaving the law altogether? They are both, they are both leaving the law together. They're leaving the law altogether or they're moving to other areas or they're reducing their hours, whatever it happens to be. There's no doubt that, they're, that some, t- some parts of the profession are not 
adapting to the needs of the modern workforce. It, it sounds like yeah. a lot of them are heading from the western seaboard up to the Keys along the River Liffey there, you know, with all those big skyscrapers. Yeah. I mean, is that like, how do you manage that, Mark? I mean, obviously everybody's entitled to do whatever they want to do and we believe in a free society. I mean, you know, in my father's house, there are many rooms and obviously you in managing the law society, you know, you have a number of rooms that you have to look after. But I mean, it's becoming packed heavy with kind of corporate lawyers at the moment. Are they putting their shoulder to the wheel in trying to redress the issues generally that apply across the the, the society or are they just kind of, you know, concerned with their, their own issues? Yeah, I, I, it's been put to me by a number of bar associations around the country in a similar manner. And I'm, similar manner, and I must admit, I, I don't buy the premise. It's not one lawyer against another lawyer or one mm. part of the profession against another part of the profession. On many levels, they're servicing very different markets. If we don't have those large corporate accountancy firms or large uh, commercial law firms, you don't have the Googles, the Facebooks and those other multinationals in a sophisticated modern economy, which drives a huge amount of our economic activity in this country, the jobs, but the society, whatever else. But it also drives the expense of housing, the shortage of housing. You know, the, exactly. I mean, the, you know, the, there, there are, cha- there are there, challenges there arising are these, from the... And these are the really significant hmm. societal challenges hmm. that we have to address. And if we don't have long-term focused thinking and strategy around those, but, then, then that's hmm. not something. And I think it's actually mature of anybody to say... We alone hmm. can't do this. But when you're talking about people who can't, sorry, when you're talking about people who find the the work too challenging, it sounds as if you're talking about the people who effectively get burned out after ten or more years working in a, a busy commercial firm. And but I imagine at that stage their skill set is not such that they're going to go. Well, why don't I move to Ballina and start working in conveyancing and probate and district court and family law and that kind of thing. I mean, is that, you know, is there a route back from the people who want to step away from the from the busy commercial work? I think you're conflating an awful lot of things in one question there. But, I think it's not mm, as simple as that. Mm, um, I think the reality, people go into different layers of the career. They mm, use the law to, uh, to mm, go off and do other things. And uh, I think they just either step away for, for a while and come back again. And I think there's, the reality here is that, you know, in many walks of life, you have to have many paths through the profession into the profession and across the profession. And, and, and that's it. It's not one monolith where skills in one area are easily transferred into another. It's become much more sophisticated than that. Um, I think the reality here is that, you know, if you're a particular specialist in a particular area, some of those skills are transferable and some of them are not. But you could say that in many other walks of life. And I think we have to plan for the different needs of Irish society and the legal services. If we can't have a fully functioning, well attuned legal system in this country without a thriving legal profession in all its elements. And I think that includes servicing that sophisticated economic model that we now have in this country, which has grown exponentially over the last number of decades, through to providing those community-based services, which people need to function, to buy a house for probate, for, uh, mm-hmm. for all of these issues that they have, family disputes that need to unfortunately go through those court systems. And you go back to the 1970s, the Law Reform Commission in Ireland called for a specialised family law court in Ireland in the 1970s, one of the first ever reports. We still haven't got that. Mm, That's not something that, you know, that's something that we have to make sure we work with others to get as well. Can can I talk to you? And I'm kind of curious as well. I mean, you know, uh, when you talk about kind of, you know, the rural versus the urban, etc. I mean, traditionally, I would have thought the solicitor in the town was a very well-respected profession. And, you know, people kind of, you know, a bit like the the TD and whatever, back in the good old days, there was there was kind of a certain status associated with that. And I'm sure there is. I'm sure there is. But but generally, what is the perception, do you find, from the Law Society's point of view, of solicitors? We we recently had, we did a history of the, the barrister's profession. 
And, you know, I think it was acknowledged that as a result of maybe involvement in tribunals, etc., that barristers took a bit of a bashing from the public, you know, whereas traditionally people had a kind of a, a, a wholesome enough view of, of the barrister. What about solicitors? What's the general perception of solicitors out there? Yeah, look, I mean, again, that there's still, in the public perception, there's still a very well-regarded profession, but that doesn't mean, uh, like almost every other walk of life, I think trust uh, in any institution, any profession has diminished over the years. Um, and that's the case with solicitors as well. I think, you know, there's an awful lot of conversation in the public domain about the cost of legal services, not necessarily about the value. I mean, yeah. I mean, something that we might have taken for granted 5, 10, 15 years ago is the rule of law, that it's a core function of having an independent judiciary, a court system that works, an independent legal profession, a free media all of those things that we took for granted for so long, unfortunately, have been questioned by events in recent years where we, I think we have to reestablish what is the value we place on these things. And I think there's no doubt that, you know, the solicitor is still valued in its in his local community or in his or her local community. Um, but I think there's no doubt that there's more to be done to make sure we talk about the role of the law in making sure we have a well-functioning society. And I think that's elevating the conversation into the value of the law rather than just talking about the cost or, as you say, the tribunals in the, in, yeah. in the case so, of barristers. So we've talked a lot about the various problems facing the profession mm -hmm. and the, you are now developing a five-year strategy, is it? Yeah. And uh, what do you see, what are your priorities in the strategy? Well, look, I mean, the, the strategy is premised on it's a profession that is not only well-regarded, but also one that people want to get into mm -hmm. um, and that there's huge demand for the services. And its core function in shaping and supporting the legal system in Ireland and ensuring that solicitors are thriving in every community in Ireland. So those are the key elements of the strategy. And that's building on really solid foundations in terms of our education and regulatory functions. Yeah, but, but what are the actual components of the yeah. strategy that, when it comes to, for example, helping the, 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 the high street firms? Yeah, well, I think mm. the point here is that we are looking to help the profession in all, sure, its, yeah. in all mm. its elements. Mm. And I think in terms of providing services that mm. are relevant to uh, our, our key members in every aspect to it, they break down into three mm. areas. We provide information services. We do a huge amount in terms of library services, online services. There's a huge amount of information that is available, precedents and so on that are used by the profession. And we intend to expand those information services. There's then career support. So we do that in terms of a returners program, people who are coming back into the profession after taking a break for caring or other reasons. And we provide people, there's a mentoring program for, for many others as well who, who want to have that. There's a lot then in regard to information supports which come with CPD. And then I think we have practice support. We talked about earlier, we talked about that area of assisting people in terms of understanding what their needs and I suppose responsibilities are in terms of regulation, in terms of providing, I suppose, opportunities in terms of running the business side, which is really, really important for a lot of people getting well, into the law to do the law, not necessarily to run the business and need support and all those. So there's a huge range of services that are available in which we need to okay. expand as well. So Mark, that's great. And, uh, and I'm sure I'm sure solicitors are, are well aware of this and will be very encouraged by what you've just said there. What about organisations like Solicitors Growth? We've mm -hmm. had Flora McCarthy, for example, on this yep. show, who was brilliant and talked about, you know, the work they did and how... They kind of filled it. Now, I know he was very much involved with the Law Society, but they sort of filled, have they filled a vacuum that maybe the Law Society wasn't catering for? Well, I think, look, first of all, I mean, the idea that there's numerous people offering services to solicitors is not just the Law Society. And isn't that a good thing? I mean, the idea that there is an opportunity for others. Um, 
And I think we're doing a huge amount in terms of education, CPD and other areas and others are spotting other gaps. And I think that's a, that's a healthy environment. It's a, you know, we're in a competitive environment in this area as we are in, in, in others. And that's a good thing. I think we learn from what others are offering. And I think they learn from what we're offering. Okay. And that's a good thing. Uh, Mark, we're, we're getting there. We're, we're getting very close to uh, wrapping it up. Can I just ask you on a personal level? Sure. I mean, as you said there earlier, you succeeded Mary Keane and before that, Ken Murphy, who seems sure. to be in the position forever in a day. I think both of them were solicitors. You're not. You're a civilian. You're a normal, a normal functioning member of society. And how is that coming into a profession, you know, where it's so kind of solicitor orientated and you came from kind of the corporate world? Well, Mary Kane would kill me if I didn't say she's a barrister rather than a solicitor. Oh, very so good. there you go. <laughs> okay. um, but I, I look, I, I, I think the, the, the very basic thing, I haven't been hired for my legal advice. There's enough legal advice around the organisation. And I suppose my expertise is around public policy and shaping public policy, understanding, first of all, that the law and the lawyers have a huge role in shaping public policy, but also that public policy shapes the profession. The environment in which the profession has to exist is shaped by public policy largely. And that's a key thing for the law society and for lawyers to be influential and increase our voice and more having a more influential voice in that space is really, really important. And, and just even from your own personal experience, I mean, coming from the corporate world that mm. you were involved in and government and various different things, I mean, was there something, was there, there anything specific about suddenly working with all these solicitors that you found different or, you know, was it unusual? I'm just trying to see, was there anything that kind of, you know, that just jumped out at you when you joined the legal profession? Well, clearly all the way through my career, I've had, you know, great interactions with lawyers of different, uh, I suppose, expertise, knowledge and interest and personalities all the way through. So there's always values, the expertise that they bring to the table. And I think the one thing that the law in general provides is some people who are really detailed orientated. They have to be across the detail and sometimes that's fantastic. And I suppose the opportunity to then bring a bigger picture of that on occasions and the phrase I use on occasions, it's all fine in a court of law, but in the court of public opinion, it can be slightly different. And we have to bring both of those perspectives. And I think when you put a team together that is both detailed orientated and has that strategic perspective, you have a real opportunity to make an impact. Well, Mark, I think our half an hour is up. I see our producer is waving frantically at the window here. He won't let us go any further, Mark. We have a little question that we always asked at the end of this. I don't know whether I said this to you, but I think you might know from previous. Any book, any movie that you'd like to recommend to our listeners? I look, I'm a history buff. Um, so I suppose more, uh, I'm in the podcast space uh, as, as I am here well, today. So look, the rest is... Pushing his, an open door with there that. There you go. Anyway. So uh, I must admit, in fairness to, to Goalhanger Productions, who are my favourite podcast goers these days. So the rest is history, the rest is politics. And Empire is my latest one, I suppose. Really they, interesting they, one. Their series on the Russian Empire was they are serious. gobsmacking. And they've just, yeah, they just hmm. started on... Uh, on, on the, Persian Persia, Empire. and yeah. it's fantastic as well. Yeah, all, so I've got to say, there's, there's all my... All thanks to the great Gary Lineker. There you go. And, and, and I, think it's I, I think it's important to point out that the Royal Academy in London has given the rest of history its medal, the first podcast to get it. And I don't know if there's an equivalent uh, medal that can be given for podcasts in Ireland, but I think we should uh, certainly uh, make people aware of, of uh, medals to broadcasters. In Holland, they're, yeah, they're yeah. fantastic. Yeah, and I really enjoyed, really they were in yeah. Dublin relatively recently, early this year, That's and I, it, yeah. I went along. It was absolutely fantastic show. The idea that, uh, shall we say, two people can stand up on a stage and just talk history with, to a full Vicar Street is yeah. certainly uh, an indication that things have moved on. Now, yeah. A wonderful recommendation. Anybody who hasn't been listening to The Rest is History, you got to start. you got to start. Mark, this has been brilliant. So Mark Garrett, Director General of the Law Society, thank you for coming in and being a guest on The Fifth Court.
The fifth court will adjourn until next week. So that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can I say a huge thank you to our guest, Director General of the Law Society, Mark Garrett, who came in and talked to us about his five-year plans and the issues facing the solicitor's profession. I cannot get over what he said to us about, let's say, in the county of Mayo, one trainee alone. Yeah. Come on, what's going on? Yeah, yeah. no, the appeal of the regions doesn't seem to... Uh apply to the professions these days. And as he said, in fairness, it's not just the solicitor's profession. You know, it's it's just as hard to get trainee GPs to work down the country or to in smaller towns. Yeah, and like it really is shocking. I mean, as he said, it is societal and it is very much in society's interest that that sort of imbalance is, is redressed. I don't, yeah. it's, it's a hard one to do, but it is worrying. I mean, we, we do need, you know, services throughout the country. You know, we are one nation, as the fellow says. Okay, before we go, can I say a huge thank you to our producer, Conal O'Moroin, and to Lee Brennan of the Dublin South Podcast Studios for their wonderful work in helping us put this show together. So for me, Peter Leonard. And myself, Mark Tottenham. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon in the Fifth Court. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.